Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Mike King from iPool Rank in New York City. We're here to talk a little bit about search today, but we thought we'd talk about hip hop just to start with because that's how we came across each other. It must be <laughs> it must be 15 years ago, Mike. What's yeah, it's a long time, long time ago. All right, I think this is the 27th, 28th interview I've done. It's the first time we're going to talk about rap very briefly at least. <laughs> what, what, what was your rap career all about? What happened? Man, I mean, you know, I was just like everybody else just trying to like make records and be the best rapper ever. Um, I did it full time for eight years. And then, you know, I got into a bike accident and I was like, hey, I got to get a job to pay my medical bills. That turned into me working in agencies, which turned into me thinking like, yo, I could probably make some real money if I stuck with this. So that's where I'm at now. But, you know, I also bought undergroundhiphop.com a year ago. So I'm kind of back in that world. And yeah, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, medical bills as the catalyst to get into that agency life. Amazing. How did you, how did you do that for eight years full time? Uh, I mean, it wasn't easy. You know, it, it was a lot of like sending emails, cold emails to people and being like, hey, book me for shows. And they're like, hey, I don't know who you are. And I'm like, it's cool. Just watch this video. I'm awesome. And I'd say my hit rate on that was probably about 20%. Um, and that was enough to like generate a record deal. It was enough to, to play shows in the U S and Europe and Australia a couple of times. So, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't easy, but it was, it was just like a, a game of like getting as many of the scraps together as possible and hustling to make a life out of it. So uh, there are a, b a bunch of people who do freelance strategy work who listen to this podcast. How did you approach uh, how did you charge for yourself as a rapper? Oh, man, I, I just tried to get as much as I could. You know, like you, you get somebody on the phone and you're like, all right, yeah, I want to do this show. And it's like, I charge this. And you see what the reaction is until you agree on a number. Um, I, I actually liken it to link building in, in search where it's like you're just reaching out to as many people that you don't know and trying to convince them to do something for you. I mean, I, I guess it's just sales too, but... Um, you know, it's really like, how can I convince somebody who has no idea of the quality of the product that I'm actually going to be good if they bring me on? And yeah, it is a lot like freelance strategy work. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's, and that's definitely what you need to do to survive in, in music back then. When you see what's going on now, because obviously, I mean, even un undergroundhiphop.com, that was, that was really, really big a long time ago. I'll ask you a couple of questions about that in a second. But mm -hmm. we, we didn't really, we, we had things like internet relay chat, like IRC chat rooms and mm -hmm. ICQ and AOL, AOL Messenger and lo-fi websites. And it was on the one hand kind of cool because back then you could probably buy URLs with search keywords in them easier than now. <laughs> However, on the other hand, you, you didn't have the tools and the access to audiences that the kids have these days. Do you ever wonder how, what your career would have been like if you were starting right now? Yeah, so when I was doing it, it was like really frowned upon to use the internet to promote, promote yourself. Like they called us internet rappers. They called us um, they were like, oh, you haven't put a real record out. Now it's like you physically don't put a record out. It's, it's actually the opposite where it's like, oh, you care so much about PR. It doesn't matter. Just build a following online. So it, it's kind of a... Um, it kind of feels like we were just ahead of our time, you know, like back in the day we had podcasts, we were like um, just, just on all the forums and things like promoting the records and people were just like, yeah, you're not real rappers. 
And now it's like, that's just the way you do things. So it is kind of disheartening in, in hindsight. It's like I was doing all the right things, just the world wasn't there yet. Yeah, that's true. I remember there were a couple of compilations written by people who identified in public as internet rappers, and that was definitely not a cool thing to do. And mm -hmm. one way that people would try to work you out if you were a young rapper is, you know, you've got freestyles on the one hand or freestyling on the one hand, and you've got key styles on the other <laughs> side, right? Yeah. So for those who don't know, key styles is basically using your keyboard on the internet mm -hmm. to freestyle with someone, <laughs> which is definitely not the same as freestyling, but you're basically going back and forth and putting each other down and trolling each other in rhyme using the internet. And so that, that was- Yeah, that was always corny, but it, it was always like the, the, the discerning mechanism between like if you are a real rapper or not, was did you physically put out like a piece of vinyl or something? And was it covered in a magazine, probably like a magazine like the one you had? Mm -hmm. um, and if you didn't have that, like you just weren't considered credible until you were like featured on somebody's record who was like that, or somebody put a 12 out for you. And then you were like, okay, this guy's a real rapper. We can now pay him or her to do these shows. Mm -hmm. And I'm still thinking about that freelance strategist. And surely at some point, the majority of strategists are going to be freelance based on what's going on in the world right now. I don't mean to be mm -hmm. dramatic. I really do think it's important for all these people, not just to do their work, to think about whether they want to be a freelancer, but to also create things possibly artistic on the side. How did you, mm -hmm. how did, if you were to approach, if you were to release an album in the next 12 to 18 months, how would you approach and you, and you were in your early to mid twenties, getting the money together, working out what that was going to be like, uh, so what, working out what the focus of it was going to be getting a marketing plan together because there's something about growing up in an underground music culture, whether it's rap, punk, techno, whatever it is, where you're just surrounded by people who, are, who get enough money to record a tape and they release a, a hundred cassettes. That's what I grew up around. Mm -hmm. If someone sold a hundred cassettes in Sydney, that was kind of cool, $10, $15. You, just, you grow up around that. And I feel like often people get into business, the business world, and they haven't had to do that. And so then the thought of them having to do it seems quite intense. How would, you, how would you approach these the, the mindset or even from a practical <clears throat> point of view doing that right now? Yeah, I think the, the main thing <clears throat> that artists now have to uh, build or appreciate or really stoke is the concept of community. And I think that what I would do would be this idea. I've had this idea for a few years and I think I'm going to do it eventually. Um, one thing rappers hate the most, and I guess most people hate the most, is being told what to do. So I really want to play to that idea. And I, wanted, I was going to build this microsite that's like torturedraparticist.com and just have people tell me what to rap about, tell me what to rap over. And it becomes this thing where like we can gamify the site where it's like, okay, you get points for sharing content or whatever, whatever. And then the people that have the most points for the week, <clears throat> I invite them to like a, a Google Hangout or something like that. And in real time, they get to tell me what to do. So like I, I make a song with their input and then we put that song out and we rinse and repeat every week. And then we build a community on the back of that. So it's like, what's he going to do this week? What can I make him do this week? And so um, through that, it's like more and more people hear about it, more and more people get involved in it. <clears throat> and then by the time that it, that reaches critical mass, it's like, 
oh, I have an album too, or I have a mixtape or whatever it is. So that just becomes a mechanism that we put in place where people are just going to continue to push it out. So I wouldn't even start from a money perspective. I would just start by building that community around me thinking of myself as that brand. And then once I've got that, that machine of people that can push things out as I make them, um, then I think about, okay, how do I put out the real release and then put money into it? Like what's going to be the paid media strategy to, to increase that community, that following based on those people that you've already got. So the same way that you would use like lookalike audiences for a lead generation campaign or whatever, you can use that to multiply the types of people that you're, you have around your brand and then uh, just continue to refine that mechanism for promoting your content through that community. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, listening to how you would build that brand sounds like you would be behaving more like an artist than many rappers probably were allowed to do or gave themselves license to do coming up because it's quite a normative world in a lot of ways. Like if you look at what, and, and I'm not in the weeds of it now, but if you look at what Kanye West has done this year, I mean, that's an mm-hmm. artist, like a, that's art. And I don't care what you think of his ideas, the way he's behaving is doesn't he's not accepting any of the rules of society. Mm-hmm. He is messing with minds and he's releasing releasing product or releasing stuff and uh, and various other principles at play. Whereas I think a lot of other rappers, and this is was definitely true in Australia, they come up trying to work out how to obey the rules of the scene. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't stray from that. And what I love about the internet right now is whether or not you like someone, whether or not you like their ideas, they can be much more of a like a conceptual artist who still does rap and possibly influence society in a bigger way. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. Like there there's like subcultures for everything, right? Like and at this point you can be weird, you can rap about whatever and there is a pocket of people that you can easily find, you know? And with the growth of like um social advertising capabilities like you can really nail down those affinities so if you rap about comic books and uh you know you watch mr robot like you can target those people and put your stuff right in front of them so it's easier than ever to reach people and also i really like the the idea that you brought up here with kanye because you know starting with the life of pablo he put out a record that was unfinished and then he just kept tinkering with it like it was with his uh, a startup product you know like Here's the minimum viable version of this album. Actually, I added more drums to this track. I added another verse. I really like that idea of, you know, putting something out and then being able to react to it the same way you do with a product. And I wonder if more people won't end up embracing that because, again, this is art. Technically, art is never finished. You're just, like, giving up on it. So I like this idea that where we're at with the Internet just changes the the landscape of what you can do strategically. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to make our way into search, but I want to ask about undergroundhiphop.com. So you, that's mm-hmm. been around since when I was a baby, I think. How, <laughs> how long had that website been around for? Before yeah, you- it's been up for 21 years now. There you go. I was mm-hmm. a baby 21 years ago. I just turned 22. <laughs> uh, and when did you buy it? Last year? I bought it at the beginning of last year, yep. Okay, why did you buy it? They, they had announced that they were about to close down And so, you know, I just started poking around to see what was going on. And I noticed they got hit by um, an SEO algorithm update and they never recovered. And I was like, okay, I can help with this. Like I'm, I'm probably the most uniquely set up to help with this. And so I reached out to the previous owner 
we had a bunch of conversations, had a couple dinners, and you know we were we just felt like we were a good fit because we were both uh, technical in the hip hop and so on and so forth. So you know he's a developer, I'm a developer, I'm also a strategist and marketer, and I was like, okay, let's let's use this brand and take it to the next level. So um, you know it's still a work in progress. I think we had some good initial um, successes. We've had a lot of failures as well. But nevertheless, it's been a lot of fun to have a brand that I have complete control over and I'm not having a client say like, yeah, it's a good idea, but why don't we do this? Mm. So, yeah. And so other, other than the fact that you love hip hop, if you were to look at a, a site like that, because mm -hmm. buying and selling or flipping sites has been a thing for a very long time. And again, I, I do feel like a lot of the more mainstream strategy worlds doesn't pay attention to a lot of that underground internet world, mm -hmm. uh, which at one point was a little bit, you know, you got the whole black hat, white hat thing as well. But if you were to analyze a website like that and just press pause on your personal passion, what are you technically looking at to work out whether it's something that is worth buying or doing a deal with? Yeah. I mean, when I looked at this, it wasn't just for it being a personal passion. I was like, how can we turn this into a moneymaker? And so what I immediately looked at is like, okay, How's it doing in search? Because that's something that we can quickly change and affect and turn into revenue. And then we looked at it from the perspective of like, okay, how strong is this brand? And you saw just from the, the outcry of support once the announcement came out, like people still care about this brand. It still drives a lot of traffic, still a lot, drives a lot of sales. Um, and then I was thinking, okay, what's missing here? And the key thing that's missing is that a lot of those types of sites have gone in that content direction and UGHH never had content. Um, and so I was like, okay, let's really focus in on the content because the content is the reason why they got hit by the algorithm update. Like it's just an e-commerce site. All the um, uh, descriptions and such are just copy and pasted from other sites. So at a certain point, Google is like, hey, this site is just not that valuable. There's no utility here. And so we're like, how do we, inject something new both for the audience and also for the search engines so that we can get the best of both worlds and continue that growth trajectory and then the more i thought about it it's like okay this site is still selling physical product like that's the bread and butter so how do we make that experience worth going to the site for you know it was going to be the same as amazon but slower what's the point so it's like how do we create more of a collector's experience so we're, we're not just sending you another brown box with CDs in it that you can get from anywhere else. So we're like, how do we do this in such a way where we can be more customer centric in ways that like Amazon can't. Mm -hmm. And so we really just dug into the data. We, we built segments around the user base. We looked at what were the things that sold the most over the 20 years. And then we really dug into it and said, you know, I think there's an opportunity here to modernize, um, what this site is and also to capitalize on this concept of like adult contemporary hip-hop because there isn't a site that really focuses on people that are our age that came up on this music so a lot of us have drifted towards like whatever we can get on spotify or whatever and our taste of of course growing up but you know you probably would still listen to like an mf doom record if that's what you were into so how do we bridge that gap for those people that would still be interested in this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really just about modernizing uh, this site as a channel to really stoke that community. 
Okay, cool, cool. And I, and I think for what it's worth, at least from an Australian point of view, Sandbox Automatic was one of the main, if not the main online retailer of records 15 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and, for all and the they're people, still around. Are they still around? And for all the people yeah. who, who are like blown away by all the filters on your whatever camera and Instagram account and all that sort of stuff, Sandbox Automatic made money by literally just listing the records they had on their website as a plain, there's hardly any images from memory, maybe a record cover here and there, but it's just a text list of records that would get published every week, right? Yeah, it's still exactly that. <laughs> oh, I've got to check it out. I'll get too nostalgic, it's painful for me. All right, man. Um, so when I talk about search, and I know you do a whole lot more than search, so we don't just have to focus on search, but I do think mm-hmm. I want to talk about search and I want to do it with strategy uh, like agency planners, account planners, brand strategists in mind, because for some reason, what I've seen over the years is that search data is often a little bit distant from brand planners, or they use it in a cute way where they'll, they'll take a Google trend to prove an idea that the account team had already presented or the creative team had already yeah. yeah. And I grew up with this stuff, uh, and it, it was super fun. Uh, and on one hand, what I'm wondering, because I'm definitely not as deep in it as you are right now, it feels that search is simpler than ever. Uh, It's both simpler and more complex. So what I mean by that is like, it's only six things that you need to do to be effective at search. And it's going to remain that way. Um, It's more complicated because those six things are not necessarily trivial. So when I say it's simpler, I mean that, you know, there's not as many algorithm updates as it was like five years ago when I got more involved in like the thought leadership side of it. And it was like, oh, there's the panda algorithm. There's the penguin. There's all these things. And it's just slowed down because Google's just gotten so much better at it. Um, Them shifting to being like a a machine learning driven company has allowed them to really solve the problems that search has had at scale. So it's more complicated because you don't necessarily know like the direct vectors that you can impact to make things change the way you did before because Google doesn't even know because they're using machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it is all about creating hyper, um, hyper focused, hyper targeted content, structured data, uh, fast websites, being mobile friendly, um, I always say there's six things and I always forget what the other two are. Well, you need good, good, uh, good structure, good information architecture, clean. Yeah, but I, I would put that in the same side as like structured data. Cool. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you later. No, we'll, remember we'll, we'll work through it. It's okay. And, and obviously the way that we're using search right now, because it gets used in many ways, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> we're talking mostly right now about SEO, search engine optimization. Where for those who oh that's that's one of them so integrated search and and it, yeah. it's always been it's always never made sense to me that two teams will be effectively working on the same page but they don't talk to each other like you run ads on the same page that I'm I'm trying to get organic listings on why would we not work together Uh-oh. and there's been so many studies that show that if you're in in number one in both positions you get more traffic by being in either one yeah. so if if you're not doing that, you're just doing a disservice to yourself because one of the things that the algorithm does is vet whether or not a position should remain that position based on the CTR of that position. Um, so nevertheless, the, the whole point that I want to make is that being strategic about search and having it aligned with your marketing mix 
is the way to go. Like we never do search in a vacuum the way that most people think of it. You know, most people are just like, oh, just do your meta tags. That's it. Like, no, if, if you're not involved in content, you're not doing search. If you're still saying like, oh yeah, just make the SEO content, you're not doing search effectively because yeah. Google is not trying to show people SEO content. They're trying to show you content that has utility for users that is also optimized. Mm -hmm. So we would always try to, or we always try to bake it into the overarching strategy. You know, we start from as early as like, uh, which, what's the core strategy here? What's the statement that you're trying to uh, follow? And then how do we align with that? If they don't have market segmentation, we'll do that process for them so we can use that to influence how we're doing our keyword research. And then how are we then mapping these keywords to both the, the different segments and the user journey. So then we can use that to truly influence the content strategy and map those keywords to actual pages. So most people, they're just like, yeah, let's audit the site and then let's figure out the keywords and then go from there. It's like, you're, you're just operating in a vacuum that doesn't really think about what the brand is trying to do. Yeah. And so we always try to stay in lockstep with that. And it's always pretty jarring to the people that come to us. They're like, wait, you don't just want to figure out the keywords and build links. And I'm like, no, because that's not going to be effective. That's not going to drive the qualified visits that you're looking for. Yeah. So can I, can I throw some of the main concepts that have, I feel have stayed true through this and then you can correct me along the way. Mm -hmm. so, so first of all, search engine results page, SERP in the search mm -hmm. world, that's called a SERP. Search engines like Google, what they want to do is get people to good quality content. One of the ways they measure whether they've gotten people to good quality content or two ways is whether they click on a link and then come back to, to Google because that means that mm -hmm. they probably didn't find what they want. And then they might do what's called a modified search where they might, instead of saying um, underground hip hop, they then look at underground hip hop vinyl and they're like, okay, mm -hmm. so that or the original thing we displayed wasn't as high quality as the thing that for that person because they've modified their search behavior to find something more specific. So mm -hmm. what you need is good quality content that people share. Social signals have become more important over the past 10 years. You need a mm -hmm. well-structured, clean site that doesn't seem too spammy. And that's what the Panda algorithm, they cleaned out all the content farms that all these websites that were linking to each other using really spammy keywords and didn't have legitimate content. And then, uh, mobile friendly, what else? What are, what are the other main principles? Yeah. Um, Metatype. I but yeah, I mean, the metadata, of course, but again, I would put metadata That's around structured data stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think that where we're going with search is Google's looking to evolve to like giving you one answer. So the same concept that you just talked about where like people are doing what's called pogo sticking. They go to a result. They don't like it. They go back. They modify their search. Google's trying to get to the point where you don't have to do that. You know, they've been saying they want to be the Star Trek computer for forever. Star Trek computer doesn't give you 10 answers. It gives you one answer. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to see them surface more of that with the featured snippet part. So the thing that is going to really, or the things that are really going to help you be there once they continue to evolve to that is really having content that penetrates those filter bubbles. So not only are you going to answer like, what's the best 10 bars for old fashions in New York, you're going to answer that for me, right? You're going to give me the con based on the context that you've collected about me over time, which they've been doing, 
um, you're going to give me that answer. So again, the hyper-targeted content is really what's going to be the main thing to focus on and then structuring it in a way where it's easy to extract features from it. It's easy to determine the relationships between other pages. Right. So the sixth thing that I forgot to mention before was authority. So the links that you build to the site. And to your point before, the Penguin algorithm really uh, shifted the way that we do that because it used to be you could just build the most trash links ever with very targeted anchor text, so the, the, the keywords and the links, and you would just rank, right? But they've identified that spam at scale. They even actually just came out with a new report in the last couple of days about how much better they've gotten, excuse me, at it. They're, they say that their, their um, spammy results is less than 1% at this point. But nevertheless, uh, you gotta build that authority so that your site can then be visible. But the thing that you have the most control over and which aligns with everything else that's going on in your marketing is that content. So how are we gonna make content that speaks to those segments? How are we gonna help drive those segments to whatever our goals are? And then how are we going to make sure that that stuff can be visible by making sure that it's fast, structured well, and so on. Mm -hmm. how, how has link building changed in the past 10 years? It's changed a lot in that you, you can't just build trash. Like you have to create the content that's going to support the outreach. You know, you can, you can still do all the tactics from before where it's like you just throw links on forums or, or links on, um, you know, uh, social sites and things. And, and, you know, you'll build links, but it's not going to move the needle the same way that it used to. And that's why a lot of people started moving towards guest posting, where it's just like you write something, you post it on other people's websites, and then you just embed links in it. But the, the best way to really scale your link building is just by doing standard marketing. So create something that's interesting. And then, you know, of course, do the outreach like you normally would, like it's PR, but also support it with paid media. So uh, the same way that we were talking about before, where you can really target very specific audiences, do that with your, with your content where like you're reaching, you're targeting bloggers, targeting, targeting journalists and such that are very uh, interested or have those overlapping affinities uh, for what you're talking about. So you know, the, the old adage of like, people are just far, far less to um, talk about something. If you like, if I call you and I'm like, Hey, I've got this awesome piece of content. You might be like, okay, I'll check it out. But if you discover it on your own, you're going to be like, yo, everybody look at this thing I found. So um, you do have to do both to be effective because like, if I say, Hey, we're just going to do link building for you. And that just means I'm just going to run ads. You're going to be like, okay, you did that. Now, where are the 500 links that I expected? But the whole point is that if you do your outreach plus you do these ads, people will discover it. And then when you reach out to them, they'll be like, oh yeah, I, I did see something about that. Uh, you know, it's already been, been covered by other people, but let me know about the next thing. Hmm. So it's really just become more of a, a combination of PR and, um, and you know, just... Um, advertising to be effective and scale it. Um, whereas some of those other tactics are just far less effective at this point. Totally. And I know this is a little bit more technical than for, this would be more technical uh, for what we're talking about is probably more technical. Why can't I speak today? Okay. What I was going to say <laughs> is links are a proxy for popularity and mm -hmm. they hope to be a proxy for credibility. 
over the mm -hmm. years, the search engines have tried to work out or have, have realized that number of links equals could equal a lot of popularity, but they know that that system can get games. So then they probably put more pressure on credibility, which means that if you get linked from credible websites, which they list, so back in the day, .gov, if you got a link from a .gov website, it probably scored higher and you need lots of little things to be scoring for you to get to get these things happening. And what used to happen is kind of a whole lot of spam, right? People would just put these like automatic, uh, these, these copy and paste messages all over, the, all over the web with a link to a particular web page with certain code. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is if you do guest posting, as in writing for someone else's website or blog, you wanna make sure, first of all, that they give you a link back and then that they don't put a no follow on there. What's a no follow? Yeah, no follow is a way of saying that, hey Google, don't count this link towards the calculation of uh, what's called page rank. So every page on the web has a page rank, which is the same as like, think of like if you've written a research paper about a subject and everyone else that writes on that subject or around that subject refers back to your research paper, um, your page rank would be higher than another paper on that that has less uh, citations about it. So effectively, um, we are trying to get as, as, as many of those citations across the web, but no follow is what happens on sites like social sites where they will look to block that um, link equity flowing to those pages as a way to dissuade people from, you know, in, injecting more links. But despite that, we, in the, in the SEO community, we've tested to see, you know, what type of impact does a nofollow link have? It still has value, it just doesn't have anywhere near as value as uh, a do follow link. And, and then on, as far as the uh, SEO community, who's publishing the most useful research these days about what's going on? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to say because I would say as an industry or as a community, it has gone away from more of the empirical um, analysis and been more about like ideas and more about content marketing over the last couple of years. But I would say Moz is still putting out things on a regular basis. Search Metrics is another software company that does a lot of great analysis. Um, Distilled, which is an agency based in the UK, also has offices here and in Seattle. They do a lot of good stuff. But yeah, as a, as a community in general, we've gotten away from what I think really made us strong, which was a lot of testing, a lot of uh, effective knowledge sharing. It's really just kind of evolved to being more of an echo chamber at this point. Hmm. Is that because the algorithms have changed so much and the, the people who started off in search have had to work out how to evolve their own businesses? I think that's true to some degree. And I think it really goes back to the link building component of it being that it's so content driven as of late, you know, all of these smaller SEO shops have tried to basically play in the same space as like creative agencies where they're like, yeah, we're going to pitch these, these big ideas and these, these big creative activations. But frankly, these organizations are just not well suited for it because they haven't been doing it for 50 years like these other agencies. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there's still kind of that, that um, hangover from, from that big push in that direction. So I think that a lot of people have gotten into SEO through that content marketing side 
are far less technical, far less thinking about how do we test things, and far more likely to just um, accept what's being said as the truth of what's going on in the, in the space, rather than just being like, okay, we have an idea, let's test it and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned, I think, Whiskey Bar in New York earlier. Just to put you on the spot, what are three to five things you would do if a small business like that came to you and wanted to uh, do better in search? Yeah, I would say that in that case, it's, it's primarily going to be a local play. So it's really going to be about like, like digging into the space and seeing what the keyword in this space are going to be that are going to be valuable to actually drive uh, foot traffic to that business rather than just more traffic to the site. Because how much value really is there in in that website ranking better for a whiskey bar? It's probably more valuable for them to rank in the local pack for whiskey bar, which doesn't require as much of a campaign of what I, as I've been describing thus far. So like we don't have to do uh, market segmentation to promote your whiskey bar. You just have to figure out what those keyword opportunities are and then figure out what content is relevant to that area. So again, if I'm talking about uh, what's the best old fashioned in, in New York, well, then I need to have a, a page that talks about our old fashioned and you know how we do it and why it's better and then we also have to have um the google local profile set up effectively so that it's optimized and has all the information and then it it becomes far more than just like optimizing their site or their local profiles like what can we do on yelp what can we do on all these other local portals so it's a very different discussion than you know working with a brand um, with national or international presence. And frankly, it's just far easier. It, it's really just very specific content strategy across a variety of channels. Mm-hmm. Would you in that situation, I just didn't want to get you to have to spill all the beans because <laughs> you obviously <laughs> get paid to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get some of it without you giving away all of it. Do you, mm-hmm. would you, in that situation, would you ever get into offline recommendations, events, Etc. And, and the naming of those events, hoping that those events get picked up by websites. Do, do you take it that far or is it purely online? Yeah, yeah. We could, we certainly have discussed things like that because a lot of times those local businesses are very active in the community and they're just like, okay, what can we, we, what can we use that we're already doing to support this? And a lot of times, because we've done this for like a, a plumber in Indianapolis where they're very involved in the community. They are... Uh, regularly on the local news shows and things like that. And it's like, Hey, make sure that when they cover you, you get a link, make sure that, um, you know, any sponsorship you're doing, you make sure you turn that into a link. Um, and if there are instances where you're getting coverages, well, make sure they use these keywords so that you can have more of your, um, positive news rank for your branded terms. So yeah, it's a lot of that. Like, how do we just, uh, stoke them to continue to get the most out of everything that they're doing uh, rather than, than thinking about this as just a purely online thing because there's so many things they're probably doing every day that impact that. Okay. And, and as far as outside of search marketing, how is search data, how are search data and search tools potentially useful to a business and its broader decisions, even beyond marketing? 
Yeah, I, I think to your point earlier, like keyword research helps you. Keyword research is a scary thing because you get a sense of like how the world is thinking about things. And, you know, a lot of times like you'll see keywords and you're like, wow, there's a hundred thousand people that are misspelling that every month <laughs> or a hundred thousand people that are searching for something that makes no sense. So it's really a good way to like tap into what your audience is thinking or how they're phrasing things or, you know, just really getting a sense of what that vocabulary looks like. So as you're thinking about your messaging, you know, you might be thinking like, oh, we use this word but this word is actually more popular. So as an example, um, American Express, we worked with them a few years back and they were like, yeah, we're gonna do this campaign around charge cards. And I'm like, well guys, nobody uses the word charge card when they're searching. So it probably doesn't make sense here. But in that case, that brand is like, no, we're gonna run ads and we're gonna use charge card. And so ultimately, they proved me wrong because they were able to create search volume that didn't exist by using that brand campaign. And you've seen a lot of instances of brands doing that. So for instance, I, I believe it was TripAdvisor that created more search volume by using a call to action in their ads and being like, you know, search for TripAdvisor or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you can use what is or isn't happening in the search volume to really drive a strategy. Uh, we've also seen, you know, situations where I can't remember which uh, phone creator, it might have been HTC or whatever, they, and it wasn't my campaign, it was um, somebody from Deutsch who was on their search team. They used search data to prove to them that people wanted HTC phones in colors that they didn't exist. So I believe before it was just like black, white, and gray, like most uh, phone providers but they use the search data to prove to them like, hey, we need like lime green and so on and so forth. So they started creating those phones based on that. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity to really, the same way that strategists might use social listening tools or they might wanna you know, do like qualitative or quantitative research, you can use search data in that same way to get a sense of how people are thinking about things and what the demand for things is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so important to look at the natural language and behaviors and keyword research is great, even though a lot of the data around keywords these days is well more, more private, which is totally fair enough. But at the very, at the very, le at the very least, you can <coughs> uh, extract, and you can do this by looking at certain keyword tools or by looking at competitors and looking at the keywords that they might use in their metadata. Just get a view source when you're mm -hmm. scouting or you can use tools uh, to extract all that sort of stuff as well. And yeah, I remember I worked on a, I did the information architecture for a bank, three, 400 pages. And back then the navigation was set up in the names of the products, but those weren't mm -hmm names that people were searching for. So the first thing I, I said to them was similar to your first example, which is we, we've got to get traffic around the natural language. So mm -hmm. term deposit or that, which is not necessarily yet yeah, term, term deposit, for example, and then you can have names there. And then are you going to advertise those names so that people look for them? But if you're not going to, then you really need to work out how to be uh, searchable, discoverable with the actual existing words that people use. Yeah, I think uh, two more things that can be valuable here. One, the internal search data that brands might have on their own site. So um, I think that's a good way to see whether or not the language they're using is matching with what people expect. So if someone lands on a site 
and you know they they typed in a, a search term let's say in this case charge card but most of the people that land on that landing page then type in credit card well you know that there's a disconnect between what you're saying and what people are looking for um, and then also as far as like you know getting a, a good set of these keywords <clears throat> you can use a tool like SEM rush or you can even use uh, the Google Keyword Planner, but the Keyword Planner, to your point, gives you less uh, whole number data. It's just going to give you ranges at this point. So SEM Rush is like a super invaluable tool for getting actual whole numbers and also just seeing what your competitors are ranking for and such. Mm -hmm. Do you use Google Trends at all? I don't because Google Trends just gives you an index rather than like an actual number. And, you know, I need to know what the scale is of that volume to really determine if it's an opportunity. Whereas like you can type in any long tail keyword and then Google will say like, Hey, it's more popular or Google trends will say it's more popular, but if it's not at least like a few thousand people, it's not worth spending the time. In. Right. What, what about for things like seasonality? Sometimes Google trends can be good for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's good for seasonality, but um, those other tools will give you the search volume month over month. Mm -hmm. So you can see what the seasonality looks like from there as well. Yeah, I think, and, and I've seen pretty sloppy brand planning techniques where someone will type in two obscure phrases in Google Trends, screenshot, mm -hmm. screenshot what they find to prove that one obscure phrase is more important than the other obscure phrase and therefore the idea that they're about to present that they've obviously post-rationalized makes complete <laughs> sense. Have you, seen those, have you seen those kinds of slides? Absolutely. I mean, that what you just described is what I see Google Trends used for the most. <laughs> and, then I, and then I'm always like, hey guys, what's the scale of this? And they're just like, well, Google just says it's more popular. It's yeah. Like, okay, well, if 10 people like this and then 20 people like that, yeah, that's also what you're showing me. And it's always for really sloppy stuff like 60% uh, of people don't like rain and they show Google Trends with uh, I hate rain searches or something just totally bizarre <laughs> to, to prove an idea about rain hate. And you're like, what is this? It's lazy. Don't do it. Yeah. What, what, are, <laughs> what are some other things like that that you come across where you're like, oh, come on, these are powerful tools, powerful ideas, and you're doing them a disservice by using them like this? So I, I see a lot of that with social listening as well, where it's like, you know, there might be a spike in conversation based on something that's just completely random or whatever. And then people will use that to prove like, see, I told you this idea is it's going to catch on or whatever. And it's like, okay, I, I, I wait a bit, look at a couple weeks and that spike never comes back. And they're still trying to like hold on to the idea that like, no, we can make this popular. So, I mean, you see that with all types of data, like especially when people start doing statistical analysis and they have those, um, it's like the, 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 the spurious correlations where it's like, like, you know, it's raining. So we sell more, um, we sell more hats or something like that. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a correlation, but it doesn't make sense because there isn't a direct, like you, you have, it doesn't pass a T-test or something like that. And you're trying to use that as the core insight here when it just doesn't make sense. Hmm. So I don't know, you see a lot of that with data. Hopeful, hopeful data, wishful thinking. <laughs> and uh, are, there, are there any skill sets or tools that you've added to your bow in the past two years? Me, I'm, I'm always trying to learn something new. So like in the last two years, I've, I've picked up machine learning. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at it, but 
you know, it's been really fascinating to me to start trying to, trying to work it into our marketing workflow. So we've got a couple clients where we've done things where um, effectively we, we've turned display into more of like a direct response channel by um, building a model based on the features of the users. And so we only make a decision to bid on the click or on the impression if the features of this user, if our model says the features of this user will turn into somebody who could potentially be a customer. So that was like never something we could even think of doing before we knew about machine learning and how we can crunch that data and such. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot more use cases for marketing. In fact, we wrote a guide called machine learning for marketers uh, where you can really make sense of your data and, and determine those relationships that you wouldn't be able to do as just a person like data mining by hand. And I've also dug into a lot of like blockchain stuff as of late. So I picked up a couple books, learned solidity and, and built out some proofs of concept just so I could, or proof of concepts, um, just so I could get a, a sense of like how this stuff works. And then, you know, we built an idea around it too. So I I get bored, like just sitting around doing search stuff all day. Um, that's why we've kind of like built ourselves in such a way that we can, uh, add these new ideas as bolts on bolts on to whatever we're doing. Mm -hmm. So with, with blockchain, I think it's fair to say that there's a group of people who are questioning real life use cases of blockchain relative to the amount of hype, right? What are some of the use cases that you think are interesting in the, the work that you do? <laughs> Well, I mean, to the point of, of what you're saying, like people just don't really believe in it. Uh, the reality of it is there's nothing out there built on a blockchain that's like better than the centralized version, like nothing, nothing faster. Uh, it's not more secure. Um, and until those things are really solved definitively, I don't expect that we're going to see like projects that are going to change the world. Um, I think there's, there's some cool things, again, like with applications to marketing and that, you know, marketing or at least digital advertising has some really big problems like ad fraud, like uh, determinations of whether or not we've seen this user before. Like you see so many people wasting budget on retargeting ads when you already bought something like that's something that can be solved by blockchain. Uh, you've also got situations where, you know, media agencies might just pocket some of that money and say that they've they've uh, spent X dollars when really they didn't. So I think blockchain has the ability to solve all three of those core problems. Um, and there are some projects or agencies that have popped up in the last year or so that are doing things like that. So there's plenty of companies that are solving uh, digital identity and, and, and being able to determine, you know, is this actually a user? Uh, there's some companies that are solving the, the ad fraud issue on both sides where, you know, if you put every bid on the blockchain, you can then audit whether or not that money was actually spent there. And in fact, I've seen an agency that is built on the blockchain where it's like, or on a blockchain where everything they do with regard to managing your money is auditable on a blockchain. And so they give complete transparency into their uh, client. So I think those are all really interesting use cases, but I think there's going to be some bigger picture use cases that people are working on where they're talking about like, how do we solve energy issues? How do we solve, uh, you know, the ability for uh, developing countries to 
have, you know, everyone having a bank account, like things like that. I think those are really cool ideas. Uh, but I, I spoke on a panel about this recently and, and people were asking me essentially what you just asked me, like, what is the future of this? And it really dawned on me that it's never really been the generation that has developed the technology that has really like changed the world with the technology. So if you think about it, the web has been around since like 92 or something, but it wasn't until like the next generation of people came into the web that the web dramatically changed the world. So I think we're probably going to see something like that with blockchain as well, where it's like, okay, we've built these protocols, but it's not going to be until like 10 years from now where the next set of people come into it that they say, here's a use case that's just going to dramatically change the way we do everything. So I hate for that to be like a cop out, but you know, I, I don't think that history has given us a lot of instances of the people that came up with it really like creating the coolest thing possible with it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, if, if someone wanted to check out your, uh, your, your former rap life, what's the one track you would listen to? <laughs> ah, you can't ask me that one on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, which album, which album? Uh, the last album that I put out, it was with a, a guy named Chum. He, he does beats for, um, a rapper named Apathy, who's pretty big in the space. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called Kool-Aid, so C-O-O-L-A-I-D-E. Um, the whole premise of the record was like, you know, just dealing with, with like hard times and, and dealing with it like with a smile and all that. So like, it's a really fun record, still very lyrical, um, but like I'm rapping over like disco beats and things like that. So it was a real fun record and I was really proud of that. So yeah, I would say check that out. Awesome, man. All right. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm at iPoolRank on all the things. So, you know, right. you can find me. <laughs> Icon the Mike King, Michael King from iPoolRank. Thanks for joining us yeah. on Spreadhead today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good fun. Let's do it again. Definitely. Peace. Peace.